I am Jackie Miller, your host of Out of Crazy Town, your guide to divorcing a narcissist. Gaslighting can take on many forms and do extensive damage to its victims. I have the brilliant Dr. Caroline Giroux on this episode, a professor of psychiatry at UC Davis who specializes in treating trauma. Together, we are going to dive into the various forms of gaslighting and how it is used to control and manipulate. Spouses and children may endure gaslighting within the family system and the effects can be damaging and last for years. Dr. Giroux will help us understand the intricacies of this insidious form of abuse and how we can learn to recognize the behavior as well as heal from its harmful effects. Hello, Dr. Caroline Giroux. Thank you so much for being on this episode of Out of Crazy Town, your guide to divorcing a narcissist. Thank you, Jackie, for having me. It's an honor to be here today. I'm very pleased that we are doing this subject because gaslighting is a term now that is used a lot. Um, I'm even hearing it all the time on TV. My kids say it. it. It's it's amazing. And it's good that there's a lot of awareness, but there's so much to it that yes. I don't think the public necessarily realizes, but then specifically for this audience, 99.999% of the population has endured it in, to an extreme level even. And I really want to dive in because I don't think even those of us that have suffered through extreme versions of it really fully understand what happened. Correct. And that's one of the vicious aspects of gaslighting is it really shakes a person's access to reality or perception. So that creates that sense of feeling stunned and confused and destabilization. So that's basically how it works. It's really a form of psychological manipulation. It usually happens over an extended period of time. And that causes the victim to question the validity of their own thoughts, perception of reality, memories, and that creates a sense of confusion and loss of self-confidence and self-esteem. It is truly like psychological warfare and the mental and physical, which we will get into, um, you know, ramifications of, of being a victim of it are so, so deep. And so I'm so glad we're going to get into it. I wanted to tell everyone a little bit more about you because we, we have a pro here, everyone. <laughs> Dr. Giroux is a professor of the Department of Psychiatry at UC Davis. She's a general adult psychiatrist who specializes in trauma-related conditions throughout the lifespan. She co-founded and still co-directs Restart, a resilience-focused mindfulness-based stress reduction program for survivors of developmental trauma. She leads group therapy for survivors of trauma. There are all kinds of accolades. I could go on and on and on. You have published so many articles as well and, and are on the editorial boards of publications such as Journal of Psychiatry Reform and Sierra Sacramento Valley Medicine Magazine, um, and then part of the National Collaborative on Trauma-Informed Healthcare Education and Research. And I'll list one more, uh, Outstanding Faculty Award at UC Davis Medical Center. So thank you so much for, for being with us today. It's a pleasure to be with you, Jackie. Thank you for inviting me. Um, okay, so let's get into it. I think probably the best way to start is just by going through an overview of what gaslighting is, because again, I don't think really people understand the full umbrella, you know, of gaslighting and what it entails. Yes. So actually, the term gaslighting originates uh, in a British play turned into film uh, from the 1930s. The play was called Gaslight. And the plot is about a husband who mentally and emotionally manipulates his wife into believing she's crazy by changing the intensity of the gas lamps from the attic within their home. So she notices it. I haven't seen the movie, but from the descriptions I've read is she notices that change in intensity of the lights and he tells her that 
it's not true. Uh, but in fact, it is true. It does change a reality. As you can imagine, it can have uh, very serious uh, mental and psychological consequences for a victim. And this happens more often than we can think, uh, even on the political scene, uh, not just uh, behind closed doors in a marriage or um, between a boss and their employees, for instance. And parents and children, which I see so much as well, and now being so aware of it, I'll even be at a park. And I want to give this example a little later in in the episode, but and hear a father or mother just say something condescending to their child, you know, it, it can take on or it can happen, I should say, in many kinds of relationships. Yes, it is very invalidating. And since parents are in a relative position of power uh, when they interact with their children, then children are more vulnerable to the effects of gaslighting. So it can be very destructive and really shake the person's sense of perception of reality and self-confidence and self-esteem. So speaking of who's doing the gaslighting, who are the kinds of people? Obviously, they can be your boss, your spouse, your parent, but really at the core, who are these people who are gaslighting? Yes. uh, Well, gaslighting often occurs in relationships where there is a social inequality, whether it's gender, economical, and it's used to gain or maintain power. And it's often tied to gender stereotypes, heterosexual relationships, for instance, as gaslighters rely on association of femininity with irrationality. So I'm quoting Sweet in 2019 here. Okay. So gaslighters are more likely to be men. They're predominantly uh, male, but it, women can gaslight too as well. Uh, but it's generally men and women are more likely to experience the gaslighting, both in professional environments and in their personal lives due to these inequalities. And when we think about the specific personality uh, configuration of the gaslighter, it's usually a narcissistic individual. So we're talking about a person with high insecurities who develop primitive and destructive defense mechanisms like projection, basically accusing the victim of being angry or shouting while in fact they're the one who are angry and doing the shouting. So that, oh, that's, boy. yeah. Such a good and, example. Yes. And it happens a lot in the gaslighting. No, you lied, but in fact they lied. And the person who is gaslit just starts wondering, did I really say that? Or they doubt their own intentions even. Absolutely. And, you know, back to sort of my parent-child topic, I've witnessed, for instance, something as subtle as, you know, sort of teasing and then, oh, I'm just kidding. You know, what's the big deal? And when you really break that down, say it is a parent that that teases a child or says something sort of mean. Now, your automatic instinct as a human, right, is to, is to go, oh, that doesn't feel right. That doesn't feel good. And so here you have this person in power, to your point that says something, you have these instincts that are there for a reason and are usually right, that something doesn't feel good. And then that person turns around immediately and says, oh, what's the big deal? I'm just kidding. You're so sensitive. You're so this. And instantly causes all this, am am I being sensitive? They're questioning their reality, as you said. So it could be something that appears so subtle and yet is so damaging. And then you do that over time, right? This is very subtle. Like you said, it's vicious. And yes, statements like, oh, I was just kidding, or can't you take a joke? That adds shame and humiliation to the wound. This is a red flag when we hear this. Absolutely. It is. And you know, an episode I did before this was actually about sexual abuse in marriages um, with narcissistic partners. And one example that we brought up is that there was a situation with STDs where a husband had brought an STD into the marriage 
And then when the wife discovered she had an STD, she had not been cheating. So where did it come from? Well, it's not, you know, it's not hard to figure out. And immediately, what did the spouse do? We have an STD. You must be cheating on me. I can't believe you're doing this. I can't, you know, and in one fail swoop, they sort of have twisted the whole conversation to where the, you know, victim receiving a, a sexual disease is now defending herself, you know? And so it just takes on so many forms in so many different scenarios. Yes, it is actually, like you said, this example is so typical because they basically use whatever you say as ammunition. So it's suddenly turned against you. Suddenly you're in the shoes of the perpetrator and you, you wonder how the hell that happened, right? So it happens really fast. They're, they really think fast. They take every opportunity when they are like, you know, running the risk of being accused or blamed for something to again, twist that around and put the blame on you. Break, deflect the attention from them to you. Oh, you're overreacting or, oh no, you did this. Oh, this is your fault. No, this didn't happen. Oh no, I never said that. It's sometimes really obvious lying, but when it gets repeated, those falsities start to be believed by the victims and by the surrounding. And you know, that's a good point because basically narratives start. And what I've noticed, and I'd love to hear your comments on this, is they love to start narratives. So they'll they'll sort of pick something like, right, like you always screw up all of the, the kids, all the dates we have, the dinner dates, you never get them right. You're always forgetting things. You're always, so they'll pick a narrative and stick with it to really start to almost brainwash you into thinking it's true. Right. And then, and I've noticed that pattern with clients, with myself, you know, being in those situations. And then that one maybe might taper off and they pick a new one. Yes. So they use amplification, right? Maybe you got home late once, but it's not a pattern, but they will make that into a pattern. They'll say, yeah, you're always late. So they'll talk in absolute or, oh my gosh, you're always uh, seeing your friends instead of taking care of your kids, but they're not able to acknowledge or admit the full picture. It's really about cherry picking. So that's as part of the manipulation. Again, they want to be in charge of the narrative. And this is really shattering and heartbreaking for the victim who is usually an empath wants the best for everyone and tend to prioritize everyone else, but suddenly being put in that accused bench, it's devastating. And it's basically you're knocked down and, and you try to catch your breath every time and respond. But if you respond, then the gaslighter retaliates and gaslights even more forcefully. That's a good point. And I used to describe it before I knew what gaslighting was as I'm always behind the eight ball. I'm always in trouble for something. I can never catch up. I can never get ahead of it. I can never get enough points <laughs> to be to be winning in this relationship. And by winning, all I meant was I just wanted to be acknowledged for all the trying I was doing, all the effort I was putting into the relationship, but I could never catch up. I was always in trouble for something. Jackie, this is so true. That's actually one of the internal experiences or narratives of the victims is, oh my gosh, what have I done wrong again? Or I'm afraid I'm going to do it wrong, or I'm afraid I'm going to be, I'm going to fail. So there is this negative narrative that's actually not reflective of reality, but that really takes the whole scene in the person's kind of self-concept because it's dictated by the gaslighter, by the person who controls. Yeah. But yeah, there's this fear of missing up or, or walking on eggshells all the time around the the gaslighter, and that really stifles the person's potential, the victim's potential, that they become more isolated, more ashamed, less confident. And that's really, really devastating and um, sad. It is. And, you know, you live in this uh, constant state of fight or flight, kind of like you said, and walking on eggshells and 
I'll just tell you a personal story because my narrative in the house was that I screwed up the dates all the time. I never could get anything right. I was always like late. I was always forgetting something. I, I screwed up, screwed up, screwed up and walked in as a family to a birthday party of a neighbor's that was, you know, at, at, a, at a different venue and must have gotten the time wrong. And there was like one lonely balloon floating on the ceiling. And it was clear that the birthday party was ever missed it. And to this day, the dread I felt when we walked into that birthday party, because I had screwed up the time and sure enough, because that's what I do. I'm a screw up and I can't get anything right. And I will never forget. I was like, this is going to be horrible. I'm never going to live this down. This is exactly what I'm told that I do all the time. Sure enough, I do screw everything up. And I will never forget walking into that gym and seeing one lonely balloon at the top and I missed the birthday. And and it just fed into the whole thing. And it was devastating. And the eggshells and I thought the shame and the trouble I knew that I was in. I always say, can we just talk about what healthy looks like? You miss a birthday party and your significant other and your kids go, oh, well, let's go to pizza or go to the park. You know, we'll give Jimmy his present later. That's what normal looks like. Exactly. And thank you for sharing that very poignant story. It shows how strong of an impression it leaves, right? Having that kind of trauma. But this is part of normal life, right? To make mistakes, to screw up schedule, whatever, to get confused. But the problem with that is like being shamed for that, being blamed, being expected to be perfect is unbearable, is unsustainable. And it's got to make a person feel even more insecure and more likely to make mistakes because when you are in a fight, flight, freeze mode, your frontal lobes, the part of the brain that is involved in planning, you know, executing tasks and, and managing impulses and emotions is not functioning well. It's paralyzed by cortisol, which is our stress hormone that really gets higher in our blood during those times. So when we're on a constant fight, flight, freeze mode from living in a dynamic where there is that kind of controlling behavior, then our frontal lobes cannot function properly. And of course, things like that will keep happening, but it becomes a vicious cycle. And so what else do you see victims endure? What else is going on with the victim internally when they're enduring Mm -hmm. all of this gaslighting? Yes. So what I see as a professional who have worked with many survivors of trauma, domestic violence, is this constant stress response system activation. So they are in a hyper arousal state. It's like, oh my gosh, startling at the least noise or stimulus or being very irritable or depressed or sad uh, and anxious or just clearly numb, not feeling anything, basically the frozen mode. They can have panic attacks. So they have palpitations, feeling sweaty, shaking. So that's a sign that your body is in a state of high alertness just to survive. Because this is a threat to survival, to be in that kind of dynamic, a power dynamic, being oppressed, having someone playing with your mind, trying to tell you what to think, telling you what you feel. No, 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 you don't You don't feel this way. No, you are sad. No, you are angry. I've heard people say that they were told, you stop being angry, but the person doesn't feel angry at all. Actually, the person feels frightened. Yeah. So being told who they are basically creates a sense of threat. And for survival, then the body will react, trying to either run away from the situation, fight 
fight back, usually doesn't work very well, or freeze completely, disconnect, dissociate. That makes a lot of sense. And also like avoidance, right? So, and again, I'll see like, just as another example, say a parent-child relationship where, because we deal with a lot of uh, divorced couples, right? And so if there is a parent that's doing a lot of gaslighting, child gets, say, a text from that parent and then immediately has, like you said, anxiety, heart palpitations, usually uh, stomach issues and whatever, and, and is doing anything not to want to respond to that parent. And I was reading some notes of yours. Um, that made so much sense because it was like that fear, just, I'm just going to get gaslit again. Even if they don't know the word for it or what's going to happen, there's just yeah. this fear that they're, when they talk to them, it's going to be more shame, more denial of their reality, more, right? Exactly. It's a trigger, basically. Any interaction with the parent, even if it's neutral or or the spouse, whatever, the person who usually gaslights, any interaction uh, might be triggering. And also what can happen, unfortunately, is the more gaslighting there is, the more it becomes normalized, ah. right? So we see younger generations modeling after adults around them. It's it's really important to address that, to raise about, uh, awareness about the issue, to name the issue, and really not engage in those dynamics, as tempting as it might be to correct the narrative. No, it's not true. I never said that. Because again, it's normal uh, human reaction to want to defend ourselves. But that's actually making things worse. So it's better to not engage, to keep the interaction to a minimum and not feed the gaslighter ammunition by giving them words that they will use to attack back. You, you just described the scenario that pretty much every client of mine is in, especially when the divorce first starts and the communications are going, say there's a talking parents, right? It doesn't matter what it's on, but you know, we see a lot of this, either talking parents or our family was or whatnot. And I get so much of, oh my gosh, how should I respond? Because usually there's two, three, four, five, six, 12 paragraphs of just sheer gaslighting. And yes. They're so worried that, you know, the court's going to believe it. Attorneys are going to believe it. Everyone's going to believe it. And when do I defend and when do I just cut them off? And it's a, it's a, such an anxiety ridden place to live. And, you know, I just, I help people with that a lot, but you're right. I always say we have to, we'll defend you, but then we have to slowly start cutting off their oxygen, which is your reaction to their gaslighting. Very well said, because with the tsunami of lies, they want to get a response from us, whether it's panic, whether it's anger, they need that to feel like they exist. Their sense of ego is so weak that whatever type of attention they can get from you, from everyone else, is going to kind of give them a sense of legitimacy or uh, a proof that they exist or a sense that they control. Because if you react, that means they were able to push your button. So not responding like you're coaching very well, your clients, trying to be like a, a stone, like a rock, you know, not having an emotional reaction that might help extinguish the behavior because it's unfortunate. Like, yeah, with the emails and the text, that becomes another portal or space where the gaslighting can take place and it can be quite out of control. And they want to use a narrative and create a fog where you just don't even know where to start to dismantle the lies. So it's better to just not engage, ignore the conversation, basically not feed it, but it's hard. And the victims have to learn to deprogram themselves because they, they have this reflex of responding. So it takes a while, it takes unlearning, but it can happen. 
it's just it takes awareness and it takes really feeling comfortable in one's truth and being grounded and just make that decision not let the perpetrator or gaslighter dictate that the dance can change it will change when one person which is the victim will change their own response this is where the key lies yeah i know that's where you can slowly start to take your power back because it is like you said if your marriage has been rife with this or your relationship. And so you're still in that mode. They know they've got you in that mode. They've trained you over time to yes. defend, defend, defend. Right. And now you're in a, a legal situation that is very scary. And it's part of the post-separation abuse, right? You're no longer under the same roof. So they're constantly thinking, how can I basically abuse from here? Yes. I can do it from yes. my phone. I can do it from my computer. Right. And, and they'll look for any angle. And so they'll really go after the gaslighting via. Yes. Britain. And it, because now that they've lost their victim, their prey, then they try every way they can to maintain control. So when they say that the most dangerous time for a victim is when the victim leaves a relationship, that's true because there is a lot of reactivity in the perpetrator. We have to understand their own behaviors and attitudes as based on, right? So once we know that, it also helps give ourselves the power, but fear can lead to aggression and acting out. So we really need to take precautions and make sure that, you know, there's a safe environment to go to and, and a structure in place and, and safety plan. But unfortunately, you know, it's discouraging often for a victim to leave an abusive relationship only to see it worsens, you know, like there's more abuse. Like you said, the post-separation abuse is a real thing, but it cannot be sustained forever. It's going to be extinguished once the victim can recuperate, heal, feel in a safe environment and set boundaries more firmly. Would you also talk about how cognitive dissonance relates to gaslighting and how one sort of feeds into the other or causes the other? Yeah. I mean, cognitive dissonance, it's like a mismatch, right? Between, uh, or what we perceive of reality and our own internal truths and, and uh, beliefs. So the gaslighting will use that, right? Will create a cognitive dissonance that will create a sense of confusion in the victim. And it's really uncomfortable. Nobody likes ambiguity, right? Or ambivalence or uncertainty, especially survivors of trauma. Since uh, gaslighting is a form of mental manipulation, it kind of accentuates that cognitive dissonance. But it's important to use that as a signal. It's like, okay, something's not right. Like you said earlier, right? It's like something doesn't feel right. Okay, it's time to pause and really actually self-validate because, you know, victims basically learn to not trust their intuition or their shame for trusting it and they disconnect from it. But it's important to reconnect, to believe our bodies, our bodies start trying to protect us. So what is it telling us now? Is it a false alarm or not? But we still need to listen to it. So whenever there's that kind of mismatch, Mm -hmm. It's important to pause and um, look at the situation. And sometimes things happen. It's not really gaslighting. There's just a miscommunication. But gaslighting is a pattern. So if it keeps happening repeatedly, then, you know, something's wrong and uh, it needs to be addressed. That's a good point. The pattern part of it. Right, right. It's when it's repeated and when it's, yes, it becomes, you know, something that happens over and over again. That's when you have a big problem. And another thing that might seem contradictory or paradoxical is, you know, there's this big judgment from society sometimes like, oh, why does the victim go back to the abuser all the time? We have to view that as a survival response. So imagine a perpetrator who's a really oppressive, controlling, abusive person who suddenly next morning becomes nice. 
for anyone, it would be really basic standard niceness or kindness, human decency. But compared to the abuse, it's like, oh, my gosh, this is an incredible act of goodness. Therefore, the victim is like, oh, my gosh, he can't be so bad. He can't be so mean. And there's also the, the breadcrumbing effect, which is, you know, big victims are worn out by the abuse. Imagine, like, let's use an example of starving. Let's say you have an abuser who starves the victim, who starves the victim. The victim is hungry. What he'll do is breadcrumb, give really literally breadcrumbs, either of attention or bread. And the victim is just going to jump on it because, hey, I need that to survive, right? Wow. If yes. the victim is lucid and resist, the victim's going to die. So the victim needs to do that until... Victim finds a situation that is safe and then, you know, matching the needs. But this is a trauma response. This We're wired this way. So we need to really understand that and then also have self-compassion, right? Yeah. If we realize that we've been basically like Stockholm kind of syndrome victim, uh, yeah. it's, it's because we wanted to survive. And we don't think rationally in those moments. It's right. really at a really reptilian brain level. Oh my gosh, I'm swirling with, with thoughts here. So I'm thinking back to past episodes. I'm thinking of different scenarios. But with the breadcrumbing, I mean, we talk a lot about how the basically abuse is so slow and insidious. And so we sort of become trained to, you know, just happy to have the breadcrumb. Mm -hmm. And you look back and your old self would never have put up with that. But we're now in a situation where we're like, oh, I'll take it. And it's making me also think back to a conversation I had at one point that was about silent treatment. They walk in the door after two days of silent treatment and go, oh, hey, I just talked to our neighbor down the street and he invited us to a barbecue tomorrow. And you're so relieved. It's over just yes. like that. And you're so grateful to this person who ignored you for two days yes. that they just made a comment that you might go to the neighbor's barbecue later. And yes. it, there you go. There's your breadcrumb. It's part yes. gaslighting. It's just part abuse. It's part this. It's part that. It's all rolled into one with the yes. end result of control, right? This is a great example. And it's often associated with gaslighting because it's all about power dynamic, right? What will the perpetrator do to maintain total control of the victim? Gaslighting, silent treatment, breadcrumbing, all of that. But then, yes, yeah, suddenly inviting you to the barbecue or talking as if nothing had happened, you have a relief. You're grateful, like you said. It's normal because the victims often do not want the conflict. Yeah. They just want peace. Just want so, peace. They welcome the normalcy. Finally, that's back. But it's just sending a signal to the abuser that you can just keep doing that and he's in control. He's going to have you back no matter what. You're right. And it, it, they've also made it usually so painful over time if you do stick up for yourself. And I think you mentioned this earlier, that if you do try to set a boundary or stick up for yourself, they make that so painful yes. that you're just like, it's just not worth the effort to stand up for myself again. Exactly. Because... If they use that manipulation, they also try to dominate conversations, right? Or arguments. And sometimes they actually fuel uh, on arguments and anger and uh, opposition. They like the polarization. So they will want you to have that debate, but they want to win. So they'll keep fighting, arguing until they wear you down. So there is no advantage in fighting back if only to say, hey, I can stand up for myself. So that's important to kind of get to that point at sooner or later, but it usually creates a lot of retaliation and uh, amplification of the behavior that we're seeking to eliminate. It's, you know, when you leave, it's going to be bad. And, and it's statistically been shown that it is very dangerous. Um, it is the most dangerous time or, or they will really react because the hidden message 
all along has been, if you do something so bold as to leave, it's really going to be hell. And they've never had to say it. They've just shown you over time that anytime you put up the smallest boundary, you're going to really have to pay. And so what is leaving? That's the ultimate boundary, right? So yes, and it's a rejection and they don't take rejection well because narcissists are highly intolerant of shame or rejection. So they take everything personally. So you leaving, it's all about their value, their sense of worth, which is zero, but they amplify by, you know, artificially by trying to control. But deep down, they have such a poor sense of self that they're very fragile. And you leaving, it just confronts them with the reality that they were not able to make it work out or they were not able to control you, which was feeding their ego. So no, because you had the last word by leaving, that creates another narcissistic injury. And it's intolerable for them. And that can lead to rage and acting out and, you know, homicides or stalking and other things like that, or um, defamation and battles during the divorce, et cetera. So they cannot tolerate. It's like, how dare you leave me? I'm perfect. Yeah. Yeah. This is their narrative. Deep down, they know they are not. So there's like this split in them. It's a very primitive personality configuration, very fragile, but it's not the victim's job to fix that. Thank you for saying that. It is not the victim's job to fix that. What do victims really need to do to kind of start recognizing healing, getting their power back? What do they really need to understand about this situation to start down that path? Yes, because like I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of isolation that comes with control manipulation because of course the the perpetrator wants to cut the victim from the outside world. So the, the victim doesn't get input to kind of question what they say they should think. Then it's important for the victim to establish a sense of supportive network, reconnecting with friends, family, people that the victim trusts so that they can help her or he uh, validate themselves, you know, um, and believe in themselves. So reconnecting with their own truth and trusting the perception again. So sometimes that might mean just like giving a call to a friend or a coach like you, Jackie, and say, hey, uh, I'm feeling this. Am I reading something wrong or, you know, just kind of getting some uh, additional perspective or input. And then gradually the, the victim empowered, I will say survivor or empowered person will finally have a sense of, you know, trust and and will no longer rely on others. But at first, it's okay to have a supportive network and also maybe have a therapist to to heal from all of this trauma and abuse and really learning to develop self-compassion. I really encourage my patients to practice radical acceptance. And that means self-compassion with mindfulness. And that's a combination. And so practicing mindfulness, meditation, and really being gentle with oneself, because what the victim has gone through is really, really hard. And what you said earlier is psychological, you know, warfare. And I think it's right. So I think really walking towards healing and using that as a life experience and helping others to ultimately, right, when the victim's ready, uh, speaking up and advocating for others and raising awareness. And the more people who know about that, eventually the less effective this will be because people will see them coming. Ha ha, I know what you're doing, you know? So becoming experts and developing antenna towards uh, narcissistic people who gaslight. So that stage is actually a fun challenge and, and it comes from a place of empowerment. We use our power for, not against, right? Mm. Like the power has been used against us. Now we use our power, but for others, for the benefit of society. I love that. And, and I, 
I say this often on the podcast, educate yourself. That is what is so empowering. There's been so much more awareness raised around narcissistic abuse, around you know trauma, around gaslighting specifically. And so spend time, you know, here, the internet is our friend. We, there's, we no longer live in an age where we cannot get information. We can get information. And so sit down and do it for yourself and start to learn about what's happening. It's a good place to start. Yes. There, there are a ton of educational videos, YouTube, and you, you have podcasts that are really helpful and informative. And so I would encourage everyone to get information and from various sources too, right? To make their own opinion. And there was a psychoanalyst in French, I forgot his name, but when he talked about pervert narcissists, it's a term that's really uh, a la mode in France right now, but it's a okay. severe form of narcissism. So basically pervert narcissists, the way he described them, he said, they are people on the verge of insanity. So like I said earlier, narcissists have a very fragile sense of self. So they're on the verge of insanity, but in order to not decompensate, they make everyone else around crazy. So for me, that statement was really helpful to keep in mind because I think it, it helps have a systemic perspective of a dynamic. So, you know, let's say in a family, family system, there's a child who has behavioral problems and then they send him to a psychiatrist or child psychiatrist and they treat the child but then the then what's recommended is family therapy well this poor child who's scapegoated or looked at as the black sheep in fact is that we call that the symptom child in fact the, the child is the symptom of the whole family wow. so in order to maintain the equilibrium let's say parents are fighting but uh, in order to maintain and make that situation livable, then a child will basically unconsciously sacrifice himself or herself by creating symptoms to get the attention so that nobody has to worry about the, the parents fighting. So I see that similarly in that dynamic with gaslighting. Basically, the victim becomes the recipient of the symptoms in the narcissist or the gaslighter. The victim enacts, you know, processes because the shame, the envy, the rage, narcissist disowns all of that. It projects. So the victim will own that unconsciously. So whenever someone is crazy, and I work as a psychiatrist, so that term I try to avoid because so many patients have been labeled that way. But let's look at that an insane person or crazy person, quote unquote, because maybe that's everything, everyone else around who's crazy, who's insane, who is, you know, because the inequalities and everything, you know, social inequalities and all of the injustices. So think about the hysterics, you know, over a century ago who were institutionalized for many years. Well, often they had been victims of abuse. So it can help with this kind of self-forgiveness in the victims who said, oh my gosh, I was pushed over the edge by this partner and I ended up losing it. And then police is called on them. Well, they look like the crazy one, but they're not. They're just kind of sponges. And but once we know that, then we set those boundaries and we protect those boundaries so that it doesn't happen. I have the chills from that <laughs> description. It makes so much sense. And you're right. How how often throughout history and currently are victims being gaslit? I mean, children are being gaslit by the court system by telling them that sexual abuse didn't happen to them by a parent or, I mean, that's a you know, horrific example, but yes, many women now in our court system where men are in the position of power, if they were the breadwinner, um, but in other scenarios as well, it's just so much easier to label the woman crazy yeah. than to dive into what's really happening because it's complicated and there's mm -hmm. such good manipulators. It's just the easy thing to do. And society does it all the time. And obviously it's happening in our family court system all the time. Yes. It is so sad. Um, 
There is something I wanted to talk to, about too when it came to healing and getting your power back. And it has to do with trusting your instincts again, because they've, you, you've denied them for so long. Yes. Yes. How do you, how do you, what are your thoughts on that? So I think uh, what helps is really reconnecting with nature. We are really connected with all living creatures and our environments, but we forget about that. And also our lifestyle doesn't help. So we just need to learn to slow down. So sometimes it just means do a walk on in nature, go swimming so that one feels the water on their body or, you know, reconnect with all their senses by smelling the forest and, and the flowers, doing yoga. That really helps kind of decreasing inflammation, but having also a sense of um, more mindful movement and posture. So doing these simple things can bring someone back into their body. And when you're back in your body, you're going to be more self-aware. You're, mm -hmm. you're going to have a better self-awareness of your body sensations, symptoms, whether you're hungry or not. So you get to decide if you're hungry, you know, if it's not someone else to say, you're not hungry, you're hungry, whatever. It's like, yes. you pay attention, right? Yes. So, but it's a relearning process. You know, how do you do that? You go back to your body. Victims of trauma, are often dissociated from their bodies. And again, it's a survival. It's like my body was not safe. Somebody beat me up, whatever. Then I had to take flight of my body. It, people literally dissociate. They float about, above their bodies during yes. the, the assault. But now that the assault is over, now it's time to come back to your body. It's time to reconnect with your body, to befriend your body again. Your body is your temple. Your body is your home, best friend. So nurturing the body and paying attention to what it says and learning to decode it. So noticing patterns, you know, oh, when I, when I'm hungry, I tend to have a, I'm lightheaded or maybe, you know, it's time for me to eat. So these simple things will help people pay attention and interpret the body signals and eventually will translate into psychological uh, interactions, you know, so having a kind of heaviness in, in the belly or in the stomach when someone said this or that, okay, so I need to pay attention to what my body's telling me. What do I make out of the situation? Okay, is there a sense of threat or not? What do I do? So it's really all about that. That's that's how I would say reconnect with your intuition and reconnect with the cycles of nature. There's so many things in nature that mirror our own body functions. Yes. And once we become aware of that, then our body becomes our tool. And it's actually really fun to, to reconnect and, and learn and, and decode it. Eventually, we continue to grow and evolve. And so that's what I would have to say. It's really grounding stuff and doing things that give you joy and connecting with others as well. I absolutely love that because it is something I have really found to be so true. Um, and I will often say, if you're, you know, in a high stress situation, one of the first things to do is go outside and breathe. It's it, yeah. don't breathing is great. Um, breathe whenever you can remember to breathe, but if you can go outside and do it, I 100% uh, mm -hmm. believe that Caroline, it is, it is very true. Um, if you can take off your socks and shoes and touch the ground as well, all these things, I have just come to learn that they are so powerful and now I completely understand meditation as well. I truly believe our brains have been broken after we have um, endured, you know, and been victims of this kind of abuse. You know, basically somebody described it to me this way. Our brains have been soaking in this soup of, of cortisol, like you mentioned earlier, or these stress hormones. Mm -hmm. We need to sort of rewire them in a sense. Yes. And, and it's 
the path to healing and reconnect with nature and finding spaces for meditation is definitely the way to do that. And then just like you said, really noticing your body, trusting your instincts. It could even be you're at the grocery store and you have a weird feeling about whoever's standing behind you. You know what? Instead of thinking, I'm sure it's fine. I need to stay on this aisle because I have a couple of things. Practice it. Practice going, I don't like whoever's standing behind me. It's weird. It's too close. They've been doing it for two aisles now. Go walk somewhere else. Just start to trust little things like that. Yes, I like what you said. Well, first of all, the breathing, that's very true. What you're saying, trusting your instinct, it's, uh, it comes from a sense of uh, what we call proprioception. It's, it's, um, it's a level of perception that's not as tangible as the other senses like smell, taste, hearing, touch, seeing. Okay, So but proprioception, I see that more as kind of an integration or, or the intuition. And this is one that people who have some disabilities like visual or hearing disabilities uh, rely on more because they have to overcompensate right so let's say someone who's blind might might be more sensitive to a movement than we would be okay so it's important to trust that that we have our five senses but there's also proprioception which is our deeper sense i think kind of tied to intuition and yes it's important to pause and really honor it and and we might be wrong but it's okay if we don't if we never listen to it we'll never know yes just just go with it who cares if yeah. you're wrong because <laughs> the, the the better option is that what if you're right so exactly so it, and gradually if we feel like we're just our alarm system is just going off too easily, then we learn to recalibrate it with therapy and with exposure, et cetera. The breathing is also a great opportunity to calm down. Whenever in those moments, we're not sure we feel we're going to panic. It actually makes us switch from the fight flight mode to a more restorative calming mode, the parasympathetic. Okay. So taking those deep breaths is actually good. It, It has a physiological effect. There's a branch of vagal nerve that's going to get stimulated and will help us think more clearly and will bring a sense of calm. And I like the breathing because it's also symbolic. So something to do in meditation, it's really like taking in the good stuff as we inhale deeply, but also letting go as we exhale. So we let go of all the things we can control. So I really like that. And there's a pause in the middle. That's also an important phase in the breathing that we should not omit. But there are sometimes times in life where there's a pause. It seems like nothing's happening. Things are not going fast enough. Well, it's like the breathing. Sometimes we need to be in that spot before we kind of let go and then inhale again the good stuff. I love that analogy. That's so perfect. And you know, I one thing uh, Tina Switham from One Mom's Battle came up with with children as well is when you're trying to teach them uh, to trust their instincts. I love this little game that she came up with because often, again, as parents, if you're split and Johnny's going over to the other parent's house and you know there's gaslighting happening, even at young ages, it's so heartbreaking and what can you do? And she had come up with a little game that you can play with your younger children as well that says things like, let's see, who swims in the ocean? Dinosaurs swim in the ocean. You get them to defend their answers. No, they don't. You know, mom or, okay, what swims in the ocean? Dolphins. No, dinosaurs do. No, you know, and then have them stick up for their, for their answer and what's right, you know, and we put sand in the bathtub when we take a bath. No, we don't. We put water in, you know, and you let them defend their answer and know that it's okay. Sometimes people say things that are wrong. You know, you're right. Water goes in the bathtub, right? So let them at five, six, seven, eight years old tell you, no, you're wrong and, you know, defend their answer. And so that's just kind of a fun game that younger kids can play too. That's a great tool. I'm glad there's this resource available because it also prepares the kids for for all the misinformation in this world. It helps the critical thinking early on. This is really important. 
it's important yeah, it that is. they learn to think for themselves and, and really is. trust their truth. Yeah, that's absolutely. Wonderful. It is. I just, I really felt that talking about trusting your instincts again is so important. And so I, I loved all your examples of how to do that because it's, um, it's just one of the things, right. That just automatically gets kicked out when the gaslighting starts and you just really are told that anything you're thinking or doing isn't right. And, and you're not allowed to trust your instincts anymore. So thank you for that. Dr. Giroux, thank you so much for joining me on out of crazy town. And there's the crazy word I know, but we're put in there, right? <laughs> but no, it's, it's totally appropriate. <laughs> you know, it is. And this episode is on how to get out. So this is the perfect episode for the, for the title of this podcast, but I really appreciate your time. Yes. Thank you so much for having me, Jackie. And I, I just want all the people listening to us out there, if they really identify with what we talked about and, and they feel stuck in that role, the victim role, please know that you're not alone. You're not crazy. Okay. Regardless of what people are telling you around. So trust yourself and there's help available. There is, there really is. Thank you again. I really appreciate it. And um, hopefully I will talk to you soon. Talk to you soon, Jackie. Bye-bye.